Hello and welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Doman and Stephen Craig. This is episode 241. So we got some feedback about our idea to live stream a podcast on Twitch. I think people want us to do it on YouTube Live, so we can do that. It's just a different platform. It might be more accessible to a wider community. Yeah. Um, so we'll set that up and we'll do 242 for that. So that'll be six o'clock estimated time Tuesday next week at six o'clock central time. Right. Uh, PM, not, not AM. No one wakes up that early. <laughs> not, not us to do a podcast. That's for damn sure. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I want to talk about one weird, interesting, actually all my topics are kind of weird and interesting for this, this episode. But, um, so this weekend I was working on the wagon prepping it for a larger radiator uh, and cooling system and realizing it's all the little things that you do on a project that take forever and no one sees. Oh That's, yeah. They, that takes they, up, they like, see you start the project and then they see the final product. Yeah. But like, I, so I had to move the uh, radio, the AC condenser forward in, in the, in the, in the wagon so that I can have more clearance for the radiator. Um, cause I'm putting a bigger radiator in and just to move the AC condenser two inches forward, I had to reroute all the transmission lines, reroute the power steering lines, move the coolers, uh, massage the metal a little bit so that it, 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 the, it fit the brackets better. <laughs> some percussive maintenance. Yeah. Some percussive maintenance with a, with a rubber mallet. Um, and, uh, and then you know remount the the AC condenser and had a you know wait for my friend to show up so that he could hold it in one spot because it was like in the engine bay and you, you had to drill through the the uh, material to do that and it's just like no one is going to it took that it was basically about six hours of work no one is going to see this at all all that work no one's going to see it but you'll know <laughs> that you did it yeah exactly. <laughs> But it just reminds me, just it's stuff like that that just takes forever for a project, and it's a it's the stuff that people never see. You know, uh, an interesting parallel that goes along with that is when when uh, you're asked to do a revision on a project in a in a more professional setting, and there and and you're asked to just just change this one little thing, and uh, when it comes down to like, okay, now I got to look at my schematic, and that one change causes a huge ripple effect throughout the schematic when you're talking about like, okay, my net names are all going to change. So yes, it's, it's one thing, but like 50 nets now change name or something of that sort, or like, Oh, I've got an inversion incorrect. I need to add a half of an op amp and change that. The, the ripple effects of what that does to your layout. Uh, and, and like, Oh my God, like my layout was already tight. Now I'm going to have to spend forever just inserting another op amp stage or something like you get, those are the things that people don't pay attention to. It, 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 there's that, and if you've made a major change to your part libraries, like about six years ago, I did a major change to my part, my Eagle part libraries. Is I just went through and redesigned pretty much every single part in my libraries, my personal libraries, just to bring them all into like the same standard of like how they looked and that kind of stuff. And then I opened up one of my old PCBs and hit update library. And it just everything gets messed up. Everything just, like, just well, exploded, right? Yeah, everything's exploded. So you're like, well, time to go back and redesign this whole board then. 
<laughs> yeah. I think I think if you are a manager uh, and and you are somebody who is passing down work to engineers or anyone who's working for you, like it's 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 a very valuable trait to understand the magnitude of what you're asking for, because uh, yes, the the concept of like I want somebody to make this one little change might result in something that is far greater than that one little change to accomplish that one little change. Uh, and just keeping a good, I don't know, uh, the, I, I've been reading a book recently that uh, has uh, some concepts about um, mindfulness is, is a word that they use in there. And and it's like a trait of people who uh, are successful in a way. And, and this isn't one of those books that's like 10 things that successful people exhibit or whatever. This is just a, well, the the concept is is mindfulness is being cognizant of these kinds of things as opposed to just like I want this thing done, go do this thing regardless of the consequences. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like was the butterfly effect, right? <laughs> I think that yeah, sure. <laughs> it changes one oh eight oh five to an oh six oh three, and like a volcano explodes on the other side of the planet. <laughs> <laughs> There's probably actually some truth behind that, you know. (laughs) Cool, cool. So, what have you been up to, Stephen? Okay, so I've got I've got a little bit more of uh, an update on my high voltage, low current measurement. Uh, My my topic thing is the circuit evolves because I I don't want to say feature creep. I want to say it's evolving, expanding. No, no, no. Okay, so so. I shouldn't say this is feature creep. Uh, you know, I just came up with a really stupid idea. What? Please, okay. share. I, I, it, well, maybe not idea is the right word, but um, concept. So you, we have feature creep, right? Yeah. But what if it was your, your this is so stupid now, now I'm thinking about it, is like, <laughs> you know how like your PCB is like solid? Or uh-huh. if your PCB was liquid and it could expand to the volume of the container that is your project? Uh, or it turns into a gas and it further expands. I, I, I'm going to ignore this and keep going. <laughs> <laughs> There's going to be one person out there that's like, Parker, I get you. I get you on that one. So, okay, actually, uh, it's, it's funny tangent on that. I, I took a class. I don't even remember the name of the class. It was it was a higher level class in college, but it was uh, we thin film technology. That's what it was. It was thin film technology, and we talked about... Funny enough, we talked about sunscreen a lot in thin film technology because the professor was really, really, really into the concept of using sunscreen as an analogy for electronics because it's like it's a really thin coating you can put on your skin and then it does something. <laughs> I know Parker's face is golden right now because he's just you know like, okay. What I can see where he's coming from. Sure, sure, and it was a she. Uh, oh, she. My yeah. bad. <laughs> nah, I'm just playing with you. Uh, so the uh, the thing is, okay. Um, shoot, where was I going with this? It puts the lotion on the resistor, or it gets the oh! voltage again. No, no. Okay, so 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 the funny thing was, <laughs> at the at the at the end of one class, I went and talked to the professor about a, an idea I had, and she was like, "Do you want to go to grad school?" and do this idea and i was like no not really i just want to talk to you about this idea but but one of the concepts was could you create um a paint that the paint itself had p and n material in it 
such that when you mix it together, you get PN LED junctions. And who cares how many are bad? Uh, how many would be good is all that matters is like you mix this together and then could you somehow apply a potential to it and, you know, basically paint something that can emit light. So you could effectively uh, illuminate your walls or illuminate your ceiling, like have the entire ceiling, like slightly dimly glow. And then you don't mm -hmm. need light, light bulbs or anything. You just illuminate the paint. Um, so you would have to make a, you'd have, your paint would have to have, uh, uh, you'd have to dope the paint. Yeah, effectively. And there's a, there's paint. there's like a bazillion reasons why that wouldn't work and why it's incredibly difficult. And how do you apply potential across a liquid, like throughout you're, the liquid? You know. Uh, but yeah, your your idea of the like expanding the liquid PCB reminded me of that idea. It would be super cool, especially if you could somehow do it RGB and then like just control the the color of the paint on your walls in your house. You know, you like, I don't like white anymore. I want a pink house. And then you just get on your app and make it pink. I like that idea a lot. Yeah, it's it's crazy. I, I think the name too, dope paint, would be pretty good. <laughs> dope paint. Because <laughs> it's, it's it's paint that's doped with different uh, uh, elements. Yeah, yeah, uh, that, yeah, right, exactly. Just don't look at the ingredient list. And, and the whole concept <laughs> is like, you have... P stuff and you have N stuff and you paint it on a wall and it dries into bazillions of diodes that are facing in all different directions and yeah, then, and then somehow it just illuminates light you know omnidirectionally yeah she was the professor was like let's do that go to grad school with me <laughs> I was it. so done with school by that time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was You're like, a senior. Nah. <laughs> yeah, I think I was a senior. It was either my second to last or my last semester. I was like, mm-mm. Yeah, no. it, it's, it's interesting how many, at least in electrical engineering, how many students, when you were a sophomore, everyone's like, I want to go get my PhD, and then you get to be a senior, and it was like, fuck this shit. Wow. <laughs> <out." laughs> yeah, yeah, it was it was kind of like that. Uh, oh. My last semester, I, I did. I actually did really well. Um, I think my last semester, I even got on the dean's list. Um, but like, I remember that entire semester was just like trying so hard not to clock out. I I really liked my last semester. My uh my senior year was my favorite year. Mm. Um, my junior year was awesome. That's when I took all the best classes. My junior year was also really good. It just it was like it just peaked senior year i was just like this is awesome and then the worst thing though about it was um when i graduated um because we went to school during the economic downturn what 08 to 11 basically and so at ut they had to cancel a lot of classes because they just didn't have uh funding for them but they started to bring back all those really cool like robotics and like um uh antenna classes and i'm like man i wish i had one more semester just to go to those classes yeah, that, that's a good sign, though. It's like when you finally get to the anyone that's in electrical engineering right now, the first couple years is a slog because you're just doing the fundamental classes and that kind of stuff. The It's grunt work. The math, math, really math heavy stuff. Yeah. Proving it's just it's, it's math for math's sake as well. Um, yeah. But when you finally get into your junior and senior classes, you start to actually do application stuff. You're still doing math, but you 
see a real tangible thing with that your math does. Um, so it makes it worth it. Right. And, and eventually it's, it's funny because like in the, in the calculus classes and, and even some of the physics classes, you learn uh, a bunch of identities and you learn, uh, like trigonometric stuff that is just unbelievably annoying. And then it actually shows up later and you have to use it. And it's like, okay, this is, I get yeah. it. And Diffy Q starts to make a little bit more sense later oh, on. I, I think I got an aneurysm when you said Diffy Q. <laughs> um, no, I remember taking a uh, a class about it was um, it was filters, but it was just math mm. filtering, just ma- the math behind filters, and it was like a sophomore level class. And I'm like, this is impossible. And then, but it wasn't until like my senior year, I took a DSP class and then actually having to do that math again and actually implement it though in software and run some, uh, basically we built a modem. Um, and that, and then I was like, okay, why, what, why wasn't like this part of that class, you know, cause half my friends in that, that filter class, the math filter class, like just dropped out. Hmm. Because it's just like, I don't see the point of this, you know? Mm. I had a class similar to that, and frankly, I, I, I loved that class. <laughs> <laughs> I loved I loved doing the uh, uh, Laplace transform and finding transfer functions of, like, complex uh, filter circuitry. But I don't know, just, I, I that was fun. Well, maybe you saw what the end goal of that was already. Oh, yeah, I didn't. possibly. Yeah. yeah. Me being digital boy didn't see that honestly i that was that was exactly the same for me when it came to um my first digital logic class like it was so poorly presented that i didn't i couldn't grasp what they were getting at like i was like okay cool you taught me this thing what's the end goal here and like there was never an answer to the end goal it was just like well, m- draw this carno map because that was the word i'm look, thinking of carno maps k maps are the worst thing known to man like they're so i'm so good at carno maps <laughs> oh i hate carno maps and like i've i the only time i've ever used heard of or seen a carno map is in that class ever i, I mean I've, don't get me wrong there's carno maps on like data sheets i i get it yeah but I've used them in uh, when I develop. Well, back when I did a lot more FPGA stuff, I I would use Carnot maps a lot. Yeah, screw Carnot maps. But yeah, there's not a lot of um, use cases for them anymore. Mainly because like Verilog exists now, so that you could write readable code that compiles into hardware for you already. So you don't really have to like optimize a bunch of AND and OR and NOR gates. Like, yeah. <laughs> right, right. I don't know. There's someone. There's someone out there who probably really loves them, and more power to you. Yep, I get you. <laughs> I'm gonna add to this like tangent trail here, but um, I, I I've probably said this before, but the digital logic professor at A and M was like renowned for being weird, and and his his description of logic gates was electrocuting chickens. Like, I think you've told this. Uh, yeah, before. yeah, and it's funny because like somebody talked to him about that and be like, "You can't, 
you can't really do that anymore. Like that's not a good way to teach. So he changed it to shocking snakes and they like whip their tail when you shock them. But if you don't shock them, then they don't whip their tail. That's how he explained logic gates. Swear to God. Like I paid this guy $300 an hour to tell me to electrocute chickens. And somehow that represents a logic gate. Ah, I'm a little pissed off about it still. That's weird. <laughs> how does that, how did that work? Like that example work? Uh, like, it, okay, like take because do you let i'll put it this way you apply enough energy to anything it's gonna wiggle i, I he was <laughs> he was literally just trying to yeah he was basically just trying to show that like if you do something to something you get a result i mean i i i don't know i've erased that whole class out of my memory it was awful <laughs> i there there was however there was one cool thing i i've I failed this on the exam and I don't know how I failed it. Like I, I didn't get any feedback on my exams. I literally just got, here's your grade. That's it. And I, so I don't know what I, what I got wrong. Uh, and I would love to know what I got wrong. Cause there was, there was one, um, there was one thing where we, we basically had a processor design on a, on an exam and, uh, there was 20 lines written next to the exam or right next to the image of the processor. And the, uh, the, the question said in, in 20 or fewer commands, make this processor do a thing. I don't remember what it was. It might've been like add two numbers or something. And there was yeah. like memory and there was the ALU and there was working registers and things like that. And I loved that. Cause that was super, like I had seen that before. And I was like, this looks like the internal on a pick microcontroller that I've messed with before. And uh, and for some reason I got that problem wrong, but I, I mean I made it add two numbers in less than twenty cycles, but I probably I probably failed to say at the end like you have to electrocute the chicken in order to make the <laughs> processor work. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, good good stuff. Okay, so so reversing this like twenty minute tangent here, um, my high voltage low current measurement circuit. Uh, so, so here's here's what I've what I've done in terms of the evolving nature of it. So, so I had the whole circuit done, but I was thinking. Um, so the the, and this is the this is the circuit to measure the current in a tube, vacuum tube. Yeah, multiple currents actually, but yes, to yeah. to measure to measuring high cur uh, low currents in high voltage um, situations situations, and I'm my use case is vacuum tubes in in a guitar amp but i've i've evolved it to be more of like a user function test bed as opposed to just like a widget that i have lying around uh and so so one of the things is um i, I mentioned last week or the week before that in order to accomplish the measurement i'm using the method of measuring voltage on two sides of a resistor and then using the resistance value to calculate my current well, that means that you have to know the resistance of there. And of course, like I know what I've populated there, but if I want higher accuracy, I should actually measure the resistor. So mm -hmm. that's what I'm adding to the circuit is a small extra little circuit that I can measure the value of each resistor, store that in memory, and then use that for the calculation. And the way I've determined I'm just I'm going to do it is is fairly simple. I in my circuit, I have a 5 volt reference. Uh so it's it's I don't remember the absolute tolerance of it, but it's a pretty high tolerance. In fact, somewhere around here, yeah, right here, I've got my little 5-volt reference PCB that uh, has the reference IC, which is an AD584 on it, and that spits out 5 volts directly, and it can source some current. So what I'm going to do is have 
two jacks on the, on the front and of my box that you can plug multimeter plugs into and it just spits out five volts off of one and then there will be a reference resistor inside of my uh my box and basically whatever uh whatever voltage is developed across that reference resistor i can i can determine what the uh resistor i'm actually measuring with so little bit of adjustment to the circuit but actually pretty minimal impact i'm adding another uh a to d converter on there and then a reference resistor so so here's the process that i'm thinking that the whole box is going to go uh, there will be a like a computer UI that kind of steps a user through, you know, the whole process of things. But effectively, what you do is with the guitar amp turned off entirely, you use the reference resistor uh, measurement probes, or and you measure each one of the resistors in there. So there will be a screen resistor for every tube, and then there will be a cathode resistor for every tube. And the screen resistor is going to be somewhere in the range of about a hundred ohms to maybe two kilo ohms somewhere in that range so you'll read each one of those and it'll store in the uh in the user interface that value and uh, then you read all the cathode resistors and you do and then you store all those also so then you take my my little wire harness that i have that has like a universal connection on it you plug it into the amp turn the amp on make sure that all of your controls on the amp are zero you don't want any dynamic anything we're just reading DC stuff, let it warm up and it'll automatically read all of those, uh, all the, all the currents in there. And then it'll, uh, tell you how to adjust the bias trim pot to make sure that the current is correct in each tube. So it's pretty straightforward. One of the things that this solves this whole test system, because this is kind of, I mentioned it before in a previous podcast, you can do all of this with a crappy multimeter, like a $10 multimeter, like why go through all the effort um, to do all this? Well, one of the things that this solves is that most amps of this sort do not have a regulated power supply. They are typically running just a linear power supply. So the load on the power supply will change the voltage of the power supply because uh, it it you it's semi-regulated, but which changes the current. Which changes the current. So as you turn the bias pot to allow more current into your tubes to heat them up the load or the actual voltage off the transformer will drop which means you need to add more current which means that it'll drop further so eventually there's this magic equilibrium point that if you know what you're doing you could test all of these points and figure that out but it's iterative uh with a multimeter i don't want it to be iterative i want it to be dynamically shown on a screen and all you have to do is plug in this test harness well after you've measured these resistors you turn the bias pot and it's actively measuring all of those values and it gives you like spot on exactly what you're looking for while understanding that things are the load is dynamic on there so Mm -hmm. i'm solving something that doesn't need to be solved but like damn it my stuff's gonna be accurate (laughs) (laughs) so yeah that's that's pretty fun uh so basically what i have left on this um i'm i've got most of the stuff i've got the virtually the whole circuit in there i need to add this resistor um measurement circuit and then uh, lay out the board and frankly the board layout like i'm looking at it it's like i'm thinking this is like an hour or two of work it's very Mm -hmm. minimal uh and I don't even think I'm going to go through all the trouble that I've done in the past of like 
3D designing the enclosure and all that stuff. I'm just going to make the board because, frankly, this board has three connections. It has a USB uh, connection, which the USB is going to supply the entire power to everything in there. Uh, it has the wire harness, which is 16 wires, and then it has the uh, the bias probes, which is two wires. Mm-hmm. I, I don't mind putting a grommet in the side of an enclosure and putting 16 wires through that grommet. Like, <laughs> this doesn't need to look pretty. Like, I'm totally fine with that. So a hole for a USB or maybe even a USB pass-through in an enclosure and then the 16 wires no, and then the two wires. No U-Tracer-style box? Uh, yeah, I think I might go with that. It, it's expensive, but... I mean, this whole project is expensive. It, like, like, I'm not trying to cut corners on this. I mean, like, a lot of my chips are like four or five dollars a piece, and those, and the resistive divider ICs and or not ICs, uh, those big resistor like sale resistors are like sixteen bucks a piece, kind of thing. Yeah, uh, the precision so, uh, resistor ladders. Right, right, yeah. So, yeah. I'm yeah, I, I am thinking about using that uh, that that lovely little Hammond box with the wooden ends because. You know, if you're going to go through the trouble of making a test box, it should look kind of sexy, right? Exactly. <laughs> that's where that's what we all strive for. <laughs> sexy test test boxes. Yeah. So the um a while, a while ago, um I talked about upgrading my 3D printer. Uh I finally got all the parts in for that, so I put new fans in it, upgraded the heated bed. Um I say upgraded the heated bed. I left the heater the same. I upgraded the build surface on it. Um, so it's running PEI build surface, which is just a fancy plastic material that uh, polycarbonate likes to stick to. Um, and it's a it's a magnetic base too. So like the, the, the uh, metal pops off. So you can print on it uh, and pull the, uh, when you're done, pull it off and you can just flex it and snap the uh, parts off. It makes it really convenient, um, and now it doesn't make it, well. It still makes noise. It makes you know stepper motor noises, but the fans are not all crunchy anymore, which is nice. Yeah, I, I actually I, I'll uh, I'll have to show you after the after the podcast. But like one of the fans, like it's notchy. It's like that's not supposed to be like that. Mm, tasty. Yeah. yeah. Um. So yeah, been printing again. So that's not that's good. Um, what's the, what's the first thing you printed after adjusting everything? Twenty millimeter calibration cube. <laughs> was it spot on? It was. It was pretty close. The X and Y was really good. Z it was off by like point two millimeters, and for me that's plenty good. It's like I don't really care too much about point two millimeters. It's a little so. less than ten thousandths of an inch. Yeah, yeah. It's not too bad. Um, I could probably dial it out. It's mostly all in the uh, first couple layers because since polycarbonate, you kind of need to smush the material into the bed so it it really sticks. Um, So you probably... this I I, I can probably actually back off that a little bit and it'll probably bring that 0.2 to only being 0.1 off or less. Um, I remember you sent me a while back uh, an article about a guy who did like a a Z-probing... thing for for correcting the table um that's why I, I run yeah oh so you actually have that yeah yeah cool um, what is your actual like pro, like how what are you doing for the actual probe itself so i use a a probe called the bl touch um i call it the blt ouch but whatever <laughs> <laughs> i think it's the bl touch 
Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a, a uh, mechanical probe. And so it, it will extend down. It has a little solenoid in it and then a little, I think it's a little catch basically. And so when it touches something, it retract, it flicks back up and sets off the sensor. Hmm. Um, and so I, it basically probes nine times around the bed and then builds a, a mesh of what the bed looks like because it's, it's flat in quotes aluminum, which of course when you heat it up, it starts to warp a little bit. Well, and that's exactly what I was, um, I was thinking like it's, if if yours is magnetically held and you can pull it off every time you put it on, uh, I mean if it, if you're change. trying to hit sub 0.1 millimeter accuracy on on your Z height, like you're not going to get that unless you have some kind of calibration, you know. Yeah, so it it does a calibration routine every single time you start a print. Yeah, because it will change because as you said, the aluminum flexes a little bit and that steel sheet you can pull on and off so it's not fixed. And so that flexes a little bit too, but um, yeah, I'm liking it. The uh, new uh, heated bed setup with the magnetic um, base is pretty nice. Um, so yeah, see nice. what the prints I I come up with. So, so I, I got an interesting calibration uh, conversation real quick. Uh, the other the other day, I think it was last week, maybe the week before. Now it was a week before. Uh, I, I was replacing the spindle in our CNC at work, uh, which we have a pretty nice uh, sp- uh, spindle there. So it's a, or a pretty nice CNC. Um, so replacing the spindle is is kind of critical, getting it like spot on. Is that spindle under warranty? No, no, it is not. No. Um, I mean, the, the the warranty cost is as much as a new spindle. So okay. it's just yeah. like, nah, I mean, well, we didn't buy a new spindle. We bought a refurb spindle, which uh, is still rated for a long time. Uh, so the thing is with, with this machine, it holds such ridiculous tolerances that replacing a spindle, like you have to check and make sure that you're in on those tolerances. And um, it sucks. I spent two days calibrating this machine because you know, at some point, like the computer's not going to do it for you. Like at yeah, some yeah. point, it won't. You, you got to get many, in there and turn screws. You know, and any uh, feeler gauges involved? There could have been there, and and I'm super lucky. I was able to get it in tram without feeler gauges. And it's it's funny because they they provide a pack of feeler gauges, and each gauge they call them foils, and each foil is. <laughs> It's it's 16 microns. Like that's how fine. Ooh. Like they like they they're like be really careful because if you like touch it the wrong way, it'll just fall apart. You know that this thing. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. so the, the here here's how it's it's kind of strange, but but here's the way that I got it to tram. So I put down a piece of aluminum and I just milled a circle in the top of the aluminum that's you know ten thousandths of an inch deep and maybe three millimeters wide. So it's just a a flat circle. So I now have a flat reference plane that my spindle, you know, milled. So I chuck up into the in, into the spindle a long arm that on the end of the arm I have a dial indicator on it. So if I'm sitting straight above the uh, the the circle that I milled, uh, I can move to the left or to the right in my x direction the length of that arm. Uh, such that the end of the dial indicator is touching the circle I just milled. And I can zero out the the spindle or the dial indicator by moving my Z up and down. And then what you do is you move the spindle 
the uh, the entirely opposite direction the length of that same um the the length of the arm that you're measuring such that you're basically spanning a circle whose radius is the length of the arm that you you have so the length of the arm that i had chucked up in there was 220 millimeters and uh so the diameter that i could span to check the tram of the device was 440 millimeters and the whole goal is if you're on the left side of the 440 millimeter circle and you zero out and then you go to the right side of it and you go to the same zero you want your dial indicator to be identical that would mean that the circle itself is not tipped and you're perfectly square to your bed well the the first time i installed the spindle i was like two thousandths off which okay two thousandths but like that's nowhere near good enough for this machine like that yeah. is awful for this machine and after playing with it for two days i got it to nine microns across 440 millimeters so i mean that is ridiculously flat but talk about a freaking headache because you got to take off all the brackets kind of just wiggle the the spindle a little bit to, uh, you know tighten everything up mill a new sphere or a circle uh and then do that whole test just to see if you got it you know like you, and, and the thing is if you take it all apart you can make it worse oh yeah oh yeah like and <laughs> and and i was on i was on the phone with the service department of the cnc and they were like look we know this is super frustrating there's just there's not there's not like set screws that you can like yeah angle the thing it. with you literally just undo the bolts and then do them put it back together put them back in and like you just have to get lucky it. that it's going to li line up and i didn't get lucky for a while and Oof. eventually i once i hit nine micron i was like i'm done i'm done i'm not getting any better than nine micron so actually i i, I faced a piece of aluminum that was uh 12 inches by six inches the other day with an eight millimeter bit um so and you know you have to take a handful of paths because i was only doing half a half the diameter pass each time so each swipe across it was four millimeters four millimeters and uh you can run your finger across it and just barely feel the difference so it's not perfectly in tram and i wouldn't ever expect it to be with you know the way that i was doing it but like nine micron was like it's almost a mirror finish yeah yeah cool yeah, yeah. we just pay someone to come do our scene our uh pick and place and stuff yeah yeah well yeah you, you i, I wish service i could plan. yeah but yeah they come in for our micronics they come in once a year to recalibrate everything yeah and uh but they have a whole kit like you said you were surfacing the thing they have a kit that's like that that it's a plate is what they call it mm -hmm. they put in the machine they spend a the whole day tuning up all the machines so. you know it'd be interesting to know like do do they have to do much to the machine I mean, I'm I'm sure most of it's them just checking if it's okay. I don't know because I've never, I've I've only watched them do it for like thirty minutes, and I'm like, okay, that's boring. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the last time we had um, the uh, service tech come in and check our CNC, the guy didn't really do much. Um, there was it was ever so slightly out of square. Uh, and he did just a very minor amount of adjustment, but he spent most of the day just like. 
he checked it and was like, okay, this is good. And this is good. And, and so, yeah, we got a test report that shows that we're good. And you know, that gives you a bunch of warm and fuzzy feelings, but it was like, ah, oh, damn, he spent all day here. It didn't have to change anything. I guess that's what you really want though. Yeah. That's what you really want. And the, the main reason we do it is because it keeps our machines in warranty. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's the main reason to do it. But, um, it's how yeah. they get you. Yeah, that's how they get you. But I mean, I don't know if they've ever had to actually tweak anything in those machines because they run pretty well. Pretty well. I mean, we run them like what twenty hours a day or something like that. So, yeah, I in in the last ten days, I've that CNC's probably been down for fifteen hours. Is it running right now? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> no, most most of the time, I I try to set that machine such that. I start it like around noon and and it ends a program at like mm, seven or eight in the morning. So I have a little window between when I get to work and lunchtime where I can set it up for its next run. And I, I, I try to make all my programs around 20 hours if I can. It's a pretty good, pretty good idea. Yeah, I, I have to touch the machine once a day yep. unless it breaks and then I have to touch it constantly for a week and a half. <laughs> So, got another topic here. Yeah, is um, it's a it's a article that I found on Fierce Electronics called "TI Calls for Lower Cost Sensors to Boost Robot Adoption." And I was reading this one uh, at lunch today, and it's it's kind of a weird article because it's TI telling other companies to make stuff cheaper so they can sell more product. Is what this article is. <laughs> um, and the, this comment here, we don't see as many robots as we'd like. And then, like, you would put in, like, quotes or in, like, brackets there so we could sell more stuff. Oh, for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Why are there not more robots? We have yeah. all the sensor technologies. Yeah. yeah. Um, but they're saying stuff like expensive modules like uh, sensors and cameras or why we don't have as many robot arms as they'd like to see. <laughs> They would like to see them on every street corner. Yes. Directing traffic. But yeah, it's some very interesting um uh very interesting um uh, what what's a good word for it? Examples, I guess the the uh um wh- who is this person? The uh the vice president of processors at Texas Instruments. Ah. Yes. Uh, Campanella. Is that how you pronounce that? Uh, where where are you seeing this? That quote I just said. We don't see as many robots. Oh, like yeah. Campanella said. Campanella. I think yeah. how you pronounce that. Giovanni Campanella. Oh, he's a systems manager for robotics at TI. Ah. I was I was reading a quote from another guy. So TI, why don't you make all these expensive? sensors and modules cheaper (laughs) okay so a little bit back on my uh my high voltage low current measurement thing i I got another quick little topic that was spawning from that so i said earlier that i was wanting to do some multimeter probe connections into the enclosure for that well i i started going down a path of wanting to put banana plugs or banana jacks, I should say, on the side of the enclosure. But I wanted to get those multimeter banana jacks. Do you, do you know the ones I'm talking about? Like 
they're the banana jacks that have that jacket that also oh the shielding on it the shielding that well plastic shielding right yeah uh and and so i was like okay this should be pretty easy to find right and that's because of uh you have high voltage right uh it's because i have high voltage but also i just want it because um if you you, if you have those kinds of multimeter plugs then you you have to have that to plug them in right you know the uh the Multimeter plugs that have the plastic sheath on it. Oh, you can't yeah, just use a regular banana uh, plug. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, the, the, the resistor measurement isn't going to be in a high-voltage environment because the amp is off. So God, if that doesn't God. actually matter, but still, I want it because I like those, and they, they look nice and they feel nice. Uh, and they kind of also hold your, your multimeter uh, plugs captive in a way. There's, they're a little bit of a friction fit. So I started looking for those, and I realized, like, I don't know what those are called. What I I know what a banana jack is, and I know what a did you did you type in JST connector? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there's a thousand of them, and they look nothing like it, right? Yeah, uh, that would be funny. Yeah, I think we should just call every connector a JST connector, like just every <laughs> single one, right? <laughs> so, and, and and okay, so the funny thing is, like, where I'm going with this is, I started going down a path of like, I. How actually? Let me ask you: How many times have you had a connector in your mind? You know it exists. You could you could picture it in your head. You just don't know the name. I mean, I could taste that connector right now. <laughs> exactly. Like, and you could probably already think that there's like panel mount versions. There's probably PC mount versions. I've seen the inside of a fluke, and they have custom versions of them. Like, they're just like they're ubiquitous, but you don't know the name. So it's, it's sort of like, I don't know how to spell a word. So how can I look it up in a dictionary? Right. I know what the word is. I know what my connector is, but how do I find it? And, and technically I'm, I'm, I'm looking for a binding post and after a bunch of searching, um, maybe it shouldn't have been a bunch. Maybe I should have found it easier, but they're actually just called safety binding posts, which, okay, Ah. fine. Easy, easy enough there. So I, I'm going to be trying to find a version of a safety binding post that'll work with this. The funny thing is, in all of this searching, I ended up on a Wikipedia page for banana connectors. Because, of course, there's a Wikipedia page for banana connectors. I mean, there's one for JSD connectors, yeah. which is a list of all connectors. <laughs> all connectors but... of all time. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? We should, we should get... Oh, my God. We should get T-shirts made that's just... The like the black like outline of a JST connector, and underneath it, it just says connector. You know, like. <laughs> uh, but but okay. So the the funny thing is, so Wikipedia has a whole story about the history of the banana connector, and apparently, in let me is look. There it a up. Sunday connector. Sunday. <laughs> There's a uh, <laughs> wait, wait. I got it pulled up here. In 1924, two companies d- said that they designed the banana connector. One was the Hirschman, uh, what is it? The Hirschman Company, yeah. Uh, and they claim it was invented by Richard Hirschman in 1924. And then a competing claim was made by the General Radio Company, which stated in 1924 that uh, they had created the banana connector. Although what's really interesting is in their claim, they say they created it, but they said they introduced in this country uh, the banana connector, which that seems a little bit 
shady, if you ask me. Like, hmm. but it's funny because the Wikipedia page actually has uh, a whole article from many years later, 1964. Uh, the, a, a general radio, what is it? It's some kind of. It's called the General Radio Experimenter, which is. Uh, it's kind of like a catalog of general radio stuff and electronic things, but they have a whole like page dedicated to a new plug for patch cords. And it's, I don't know. It's like showing like the wonders of banana connectors and what you can do with them. It, uh, it's kind of cute, but they, they also call out um, that they had introduced the this new connector in 1924 so i don't know it's just it's funny like when you go searching for something like i wouldn't have thought that the banana connector the humble banana connector had such a uh a dark past in 1924 <laughs> <laughs> so also uh do you know why the banana connector is called a banana connector it's definitely not the scale of a banana so it's not that uh, and and this is what this is kind of dumb uh, in in my opinion but like you know how the little the actual jack part of it has mm-hmm. the uh, spring arms yeah the little the little uh spring yeah the yeah. little springs someone at some time said that that resembles a banana so it got the name banana connector and actually, so most modern banana connectors have one of those leaf springs, I guess you could mm-hmm. say. Uh, or, sorry, they have four of them. Um, yeah, four. And the original ones had one. So it was like basically a stud with one arm on it. Ah, uh, that would actually look more like a banana. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Ah, makes sense. Yeah, there you go. All the things you never thought or you never knew of and you probably didn't care to know. Yep, yep. So speaking of that, I got one more quick topic, and it might get a little weird, but we'll see. This this um, whole episode is weird. <laughs> the, um, la- I think it was last week. Anyways, Elon Musk. Um, we don't talk about him a lot because we don't actually talk about pretty much anyone on this podcast besides <laughs> us. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Elon Musk. He has a new company I never heard about before before this press release, but it's the Neuralink Implant Company. Um, and this is just kind of a weird side note. Go and watch the the press release um, about it. Basically, they had a whole bunch of pigs, and they put like a circuit board in the pig's brain. Um, and it's not to control the pig; it's like a Fitbit for your brain, is how he pitched it. And it kind of makes sense. Basically, it's just using a bunch of wires to read neurons, right? Um, kind of a cool idea it's been done and experimented with before but i think they're going with it with the they're looking at it like in a different way but one of the, the examples that he had um for uh the use case is they were able to predict where the joints of the pig was at so the pig was like walking on a treadmill and they had one of these things hooked up to his brain and they were able to predict where the joints of the pig were at by just reading the neurons, mm. which was very interesting because then, then he didn't say anything else about it. And I'm like, that is that is to- totally where that application is, is making prosthetics. Oh, like you can know where the prosthetic is in space? Yeah. Yeah. And then you, you're, you, well, your neurons would fire and it would, your, that 
prosthetic would move. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and then the brain is really good at error correction. And so, you know, they were like, oh, yeah, it's only like 95% correct. And I'm like, that's probably about as good as what the human brain is normally good at. <laughs> At like body positioning, unless you're like an athlete. I bet or you it's a hell of a lot better than ninety five percent. Could be. I I, I don't think I don't think five percent of your steps you fall. <laughs> no, no, but your body's very good at feedback. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like close your eyes and and try to remove all your sensory inputs and then try to walk around your house. Yeah. Do it. <laughs> do it long enough and you're good. Good at it. Yeah. Yeah. But. Most people are not. So. Yeah, I, the 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 biggest problem I'm seeing here is that they're they're monitoring the fitness of pigs, and pigs are the one animals that shouldn't be fit. You know, <laughs> like. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's it's a um, it's a very interesting idea. And I just thought it was interesting on the just the fact that he brought that up and but didn't make the application jump. It was very obvious to me what that would have been. And well, like prosthetics. Yeah, I mean, he didn't publicly make that that jump. Yeah, but the the thing is, a lot of the the the, the he, they showed off a lot of the tech, but they didn't show off any of the application of like why of that. I don't know if that was on purpose or not. Um, but yeah, we'll see where that goes. It's amazing what you can do when you have billions of dollars. You know, <laughs> billions of dollars. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, electric cars, rocket ships, uh, flamethrowers, flamethrowers. Yeah, yep. That's the boring company. He's gonna bore into your skull and implant Tesla computers. Yeah, Tesla computers. Uh, yeah. All they do is they play they play commercials in your head until you go out and buy a Tesla car, and then shoot <laughs> it into space. Yep. <laughs> well, that's been done before. You can't do that again. Right. Okay. We got to do something new. Uh, yeah. Nuke Mars, right? Wasn't that one of the... Yeah, Nuke Mars. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So that was the Backfab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Delman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Take it easy.